All right. Well, welcome everyone. We're going to go ahead and continue on. If we can get roll call, please. Uh, Present. Hang on just one second. That is a terrible echo. Um, is everyone sure that they're on mute except for me? That my echo. Thank you. Okay. okay, Alfred. Present. I'm gonna try this without the microphone. Elkstrand. Present. Johnson. Present. Kelly. Here. Marrero. Present. Martin. Present. Mizell. Walker. Simon Weisberg. We have a quorum. Sorry about the uh, echo. I may just need to read this out loud because my computer is not cooperating. The Berkeley Rent Stabilization Board recognizes that the rental housing units we regulate are built on the territory of the Huchun, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chochenyo-speaking Ohlone people, the ancestors and descendants of the sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to all of the Ohlone tribes and descendants of the Verona Band. As we begin our meeting tonight, we acknowledge and honor the original inhabitants of Berkeley, the documented 5,000-year history of a vibrant community at the West Berkeley Shell Mound, and the Ohlone people who continue to reside in the East Bay. We recognize that Berkeley's landlords and tenants have and continue to benefit from the use and occupation of this unceded stolen land since the city of Berkeley's incorporation in 1878 and since the Rent Stabilization Board's creation in 1980. As stewards of the laws regulating rental housing, it is not only vital that we recognize the history of this land but also recognize that the Ohlone people are present members of Berkeley and other East Bay communities today. Microphone. Microphone. We're now going to turn to the agenda and have to get um, any requests now um, or anything around anything want to move consent. Uh, Chair, for information, I want to ask, um, what would the process be for requesting perhaps to change my club and diet? Um, probably if I could be on the far left, I prefer that if a uh, commissioner of trans and medical, but obviously not a critical issue. That's fine with me. Yeah, for the next week. Okay. Um, is there any conditions of the Yeah, I'll move to approve the agenda, and I believe you know, I want to pull one of the items from the discretionary waiver to the W5078 Chestnut to action. Yes, yes. And so, um, so now we are going to 
So do I have a second? We need to vote on that. If, if that was, well, we have to vote on the motion. Was that, was that the end of your motion, Vice Chair Alpert? Yes. So do we have a second? Okay. All right. Paul Paul? So I should mention this, and I, sh I apologize, I should have mentioned this earlier. Now that we're all in person, we don't have to do a roll call. It, it's probably, thing. I think we're all so used to it. I can, but we can do voice votes as long as everyone is present. So um, I'll go ahead and do roll call now, but going forward, I can just do a voice vote unless um, it's something that um, the chair or staff think should be a roll call vote. So Albert? Elkstrand? Yes. Johnson? Yes. Kelly? Yes. Marrero? Yes. Martinak? Yes. Mizell? Yes. Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. Motion carries unanimous. We're now going to take public comment. This is for non-agenda items. There's no one here in the um, here. I'm going to move uh, directly to those who are online. Um, I actually don't have access to um, the board secretary. I do. So the first person is former Commissioner Paula Laverde, and we are doing two minutes, correct? Okay. Uh, Paula, uh, go ahead. Hi there. Uh, before you take my time, I just want to mention that I can't see anybody, and the audio is not really working well. It, found, it sounds like you're underwater or something. It, it's not very clear. I was at the city council meeting on Tuesday, and it was great, but some reason the meeting isn't very clear, and we're not seeing the people. Uh, thank you very much. I just want to congratulate the, the rent board on the win, the court win in the... Um, in that case uh, regarding, um, oh my gosh, I've, I've lost my, my um, in the a, a court case in the Court of Appeals, the NCR properties versus the city of Berkeley and Sydney Lee properties. Congratulations for protecting and preserving rent control units in Berkeley. My hat's off to Councillor Brown. Thank you so much and I know your team that included uh, the retired uh, Mr. Siegel, but Hannah Kim and, and, and the other attorneys, thank you so much for protecting our rent controlled units. Um, I don't know if this case, I think this case might possibly impact um, on other uh, units where the developers, you know, try to carve out more units out of a building and it does protect the, those, those units that are under rent control. So anyways, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm not seeing any other hands raised. Um, thank you. In reference to there not being no quality for hoping for, um, the quality for everyone to make sure you're close enough to the mic and um, that you have your light on when you speak. All right. Um, so we're going to go ahead and move now to public comment on items um, that are on the agenda. And if anybody who's in attendance wants to raise their hand. Okay, I'm not seeing any. So we are now going to move on to uh, consent items. Can I get a motion? Thank you. Can we get, do we roll call? We need a second. 
Okay, moving consent items as written. Um, all in favor, you can just say aye or, or yes. Opposed? None, abstain? Motion carries unanimously. Okay, we're going to now move to um, identify moving the discretionary waiver of Delphine Fine Bureau of Complaint um, to the first item of the agenda. Um, I just had a few questions on this. Um, I guess I would just concern this. Um, this is for, I, I don't know if um, Clark Williams is able to um, address this, but it's taking up quite a bit of money, a large building. It is experienced uh, management company. I, I didn't get, I found it a little bit um, unlikely that they didn't know it. I think they saw the chat, and I think that's in the rain. Um, it's 46 units, I think. So 9,000 or 46 units. Um, I, I just knew they didn't see it July. They decided to wait on. Were you able to promote on the She's she's already a panelist. Uh, let me ask her to unmute. I'm sorry, commissioners. What was the question? Uh, the sound is a little bit more is a little muffled. Um, I was just, it seemed like, you know, it's a large building, um, it's a large management company that, you know, has lots of experience. It seemed a little bit, um, not very credible to say they didn't know the pain that much time. Um, and I was just curious why we decided to do that. Why we were waiting all of those for the is the question why are, is the recommendation to waive the, the penalty fees when they're that high? Yeah, well, it's a large building and um, it's a management company that's been practicing in large. I mean, it seems a little bit. Um, Amanda, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Amy. I, I, I'm having trouble hearing the commissioners. The sound is muffled. Right. I, do you want to try taking your mask off just to see if that helps? I apologize for the delays. That's right. Yeah, I think, I think we're going to take a pause and figure out. Okay. Um, we're about to do the budget and we can't have people hear us. Um, Amanda, thank you so much. We'll, we'll be back. <laughs> oh, no problem. I'll be here. I'll be my pause to figure out the sound.
So, oh, yeah, I think you need to be muted and let me tell him to unmute. Yeah, are, are you? Is this one more This is the That's. No, I thought I So I So this is recording in progress. Can you hear me now? Amanda or Leaf, can you hear me now? Yes, yeah, I can. Perfectly clear. Okay, but now we're getting the echo. 
Is the echo on Zoom or is it in the boardroom? I didn't hear echo just then, but can you? Is there an echo now? There's still a little bit of an echo now. Tiny one, but it was really bad before. I'm still in. It is off now. Yeah. We, we're doing the same thing yesterday, and this didn't happen, so I just know I did it to get out. Okay. Shoes. Which one? Amanda, Amanda, can you hear us now? Yes, I can. Amanda, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. I can hear you. You can? Mm -hmm. Can you say something to see if we can hear you? Hello, good evening, commissioners. My name is Amanda Everhart. We can't hear her. Amanda, can you hear me? I can hear Leaf. <laughs> Amanda, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, and we can hear you. How bad is the echo on your end? I don't have an echo on my end. So it's just my end. I think it's coming out of your laptop. Okay, thank you. Bear with us. Should we try muting for So Amanda, no. Amanda or Leaf, can one of you say something and let me know if you can hear me? I can hear you, Amy. So Amanda, I can see you talking. I can't hear you. All right. So we're halfway there. Thank you. 
No, I'm just watching. So he's here says the story. So he has to be a panelist. So in other words, if he needs consent, no, we don't need to hear him. We need to hear us. Okay, so yeah, let's mute this. Okay. 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 Testing, testing, one, two, three. Amanda or Leaf, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Amy. Me too. Amanda or Leaf, can you hear me? Yes, yes we, we can, can hear you. If you're speaking, we it looks like they're speaking, but we can't hear them. Okay. That's that's 
Testing, testing, one, two, three. Amanda and Leaf, or Leaf, can you hear me? Yes, Amy, we can hear you. Yeah, Amanda's speaking, and I cannot hear her. Yeah, I'm speaking as well. Can you hear me, Amy? Amy? Yeah, we can. We can hear you, Amy. <laughs> Testing, testing, one, two, three. Amanda and Leaf, can you hear me? I can hear you, Amy. I can hear you, Amy. Can you say something? We are talking. One, two, three. Okay. We one, can see two, you speaking, just can't hear you. <clears throat> I feel like that's just something to do with the settings in there. The settings in there, the settings in there, the settings in there, the settings in there, the settings. Testing, 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 one, two, three. Nope, nope, nope. 
Okay, thank you for bearing with us. Um, Amanda and or Leaf, can you hear me? Yes, Amy, I can hear you. Yes! Leaf? Okay. <laughs> yes. And there's no echo? Oh my no. God, I did it. <laughs> Don't ask me what I did. I was just pressing random buttons. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, I apologize, everyone. I think that has resolved the issue. Will you stick around for me? <laughs> apologies uh, to members of the public. Apologies to the board. I think we just finally figured out our tech issue. So I believe that, Chair, you were asking uh, Amanda Eberhardt a question about a waiver. Is that correct? So go ahead. I believe she can hear you. <laughs> Do you. Make sure you have your microphone on, please. We're now changing from not muting yourself to turning on the microphone. So I feel like I'm never going to get the tech right. Anyway, thank you. And thank you for everyone's patience. Um, so, Amanda, I was asking regarding this discretionary waiver. Um, I guess I was just concerned that we were waiving $9,000 and it didn't seem like there was a significant reason. I wondered if you could shed a light to them. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Um, good evening, commissioners. I apologize for the delay as well. Um, so the ordinance doesn't actually have um, limits in terms of like penalty limits and what we can waive. So when I was researching this property and this waiver, uh, the Lapham Management Company is the property that is the management company, but the Rug and Ellsworth LLC is uh, this 1951 uh, Chestnut is the only property under that LLC that I could find. Um, and so because it has 36 units, it's automatically discretionary because the amount of units make it um, a waiver for the board to hear. Um, but because this was their only property that they owned, and it was the first late payment they made uh, under regulation 884C, we do have the option to waive 100% um, of the penalty for just the first um, missed registration payment. So that was my um, rationale for the recommendation. And when you were saying that there was no other... Um... Uh, that there was no other properties that they owned? I mean, it's an LLC. Did you kind of pierce the LLC and look at the partners? Um, and did you ask the management company if that was the case? Um, no, I did not, but I can go back and do that if you would like. Okay. Um, I guess I would like to make a motion that we... Um, that we we do we don't waive the penalties um, unless none of the partners own anything else, any other rental anywhere. Would that just be remanding it. Um, I guess I'm just going to ask council if, in that case, I don't know if you were following. Um, I don't. I want to make a motion that we they actually we don't waive any of the penalties. Um, because it's an LLC and we will never know what they own. So unless they really can show that none of the partners of the LLC don't own any other residential properties. Um, so would you like us to, would that motion mean just to have it come back for us I, to determine those facts? Or? I think that would be the cleanest. If you're asking okay. staff to sort of look into the members of the LLC, assuming that we're able to find that out, um, 
and come back with a further recommendation, I think that that would be the best way to do it rather Great. than a conditional one. So Great. if you just That's want to continue the matter to the next meeting, that would be the best. I'd, yeah. I'd, okay. Great. I'd like to make a motion then to continue W5078 um, and then request that staff um, delve into the, the ownership. Can I get a second? second? I'll second. second. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I, I did recognize uh, Commissioner Johnson's voice above that, um, so if we'll give him the second. Um, can we go ahead and take a vote? Sure. So this is to continue uh, waiver 5078 to the April meeting and ask staff to investigate um, the ownership uh, voice vote. Um, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? Motion carries unanimously. Great. We're going to now move to the public hearing on proposed increase to the annual registration fees for fiscal year 2023 through 2024. I'm going to turn it over to uh, Director Williams. Good evening. Good evening. Can you all hear me? Okay. Good evening. Um, uh, Leif Purcell is going to do a PowerPoint presentation um, about the uh, fee proposal. Good evening, commissioners. Apologies, I couldn't be there in person tonight. Um, let me know if you can see the when you can see the PowerPoint. We can see it now. Okay. Oops. Hey, can you still see it? Yep. Okay. Okay, so this is the fiscal year 2024 um, registration fee recommendation from the Budget and Personnel Committee and staff. So to bring everyone up to speed on the current year FY23 adopted budget, the, the board's adopted budget maintained registration fee levels at their current levels um, that the fully covered fee has been at 250 for the past five fiscal years. And this has been the board's strategy to deal with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic um, for the rental housing market, uh, you know, impacts that have created hardships for both property owners and tenants. And in order to maintain registration fee levels where they were and to um, pay for increased costs, the board's adopted bu budget um, authorized def deficit spending by up to 925,000. And part of this, just because this type of deficit spending is not sustainable, um, the board was built into the recommendation was the board was gonna have to consider a fee increase in for fiscal year 2024, the upcoming fiscal year. So the board's reserve policy um, historically has been to target to maintain funds to cover one to two months of operations. This translate into 18, eight to 16% of annual expenditures. For the past few years, the board has maintained over the 16%, but with this deficit spending of up to 925,000, the board authorized reducing that uncommitted reserve to as low as 6.2%. So just to go over the types of um, units we have that have different registration fees. 
we have fully covered units um, that have both rent regulation and eviction protections. There's about 19,600 of those. The current fee is 250 per unit, and that equates to about $4.9 million in revenue at the current fee level. We also have partially covered Measure MM units. They only have the eviction protections, not the rec rent regulation. And those, there are about 5,000 units. The current fee is $150 per unit, and that um, equates to, to $750,000 in annual revenue. Then there's a subcategory of the Measure MM unit, which is the affordable housing Measure MM a unit type. Though that's a unit in a 100% affordable housing project that is operated by a nonprofit but owned by a for-profit, and that for-profit ownership causes it to come under um, under the registration requirements of the ordinance. So for those units, two years ago, the board voted for a lower fee. Um, and there's currently just under 600 of those units, and the fee level for those is $37 per unit, and that's just over $21,000 of revenue. And then we have the summer and fraternity soror sorority rental fee. This is for summer rentals to fraternity or sorority of by fraternities or sororities to non-members in the summer. We have a total of just about 600 units in our database. But not all of those are registered or were rented in this past fiscal year, just about half of those were. So even though there's a total possible revenue of 42,000, this year of that total, the board got about half, um, about 21,000. So for this current fiscal year, 2023, um, the board adopted or and projected in their adopted budget revenue of just over 5.6 million. Actual at mid-year, which is um, end of day, uh, December 31st of 2022, the board has already collected uh, just about that amount, I think $7 short, which is pretty amazing how close that was. So currently there are about 500 delinquent accounts owing about $300,000 or $320,000. So if the board collects just half of that through the next six months, the, the, that would bring revenue projections to about 5.85 million. Oh, the, there's one, one point I forgot to mention here. The, um, the actual revenue for this year includes just, just under 800,000 of revenue that was collected in the previous year. So as we looked at look at the audited financial statements, it'll show less revenue this year, and that's because seven hundred and seventy five thousand dollars of this year uh, fiscal year twenty twenty three registration revenue was collected in the previous fiscal year, and it was it was this was due to um, an adjustment for property owners registering under three DI where they have to close out they had to close out the FY22 registration before proceeding to FY23 but some owners just paid their registration fees which created a credit on the account which was taken in accounting wise as FY22 revenue but then it was a, an account credit that rolled over and paid and then served to pay the FY23 revenue so accounting wise it, it'll look like more money came in last year 
but for our purposes, it's really important to know how much of the current year's registration revenue came in for this year. And just to explain that, nearly 800,000 was accounted for in the previous fiscal year. So now moving on to expenditures, the board's uh, budget authorized nearly $6.8 million uh, in expenditures for this fiscal year. So far, as of 1231-22, um, just under $3 million have been expended. And this is lower than anticipated due, so, due to some vacancies and staff turnover. Um, so there's some saving there, but obviously we've been under staff capacity due to the savings. But when that's accounted for, updated projected expenditures are now 6.6 .6 million. So almost a $200,000 savings between salary and benefits there. So how does this um, even out with these new projections, um, increased revenues, slightly decreased expenditures? Staff are now projecting that the board will have a budget deficit of 751,000, so slightly lower than the adopted 925 thousand dollars deficit spending. I did want to point out here though that this presentation, the report, um, you know, most of the work we've done with the budget and personnel committee did not anticipate the additional hundred thousand dollar allocation to the legal service contracts that was done on consent today. So any of these numbers, um, the the projected expenditures will, you know, we'll have to update them to add a hundred thousand dollars for this fiscal year. So the actual deficit will be closer to $850,000, assuming all that money is spent this fiscal year. So how does this all impact the, the board's uncommitted reserve? Um, so originally the 925,000 of deficit spending was going to leave the board with just over 400,000 in their um, uncommitted reserve, that's 6.2%. Um, well below the board's targeted 8 to 16% reserve. And now with these updated projections, uh, the board should have closer to a million dollars. But then again, if you subtract the 100,000, it would be closer to 900,000. So the, the near million would be about 14.3% with the additional 100,000 all coming from the un uncommitted reserve. It'll be closer to 13% um, of annual expenditures. So how the board and the budget and personnel committee project what sort of revenue is needed for the upcoming fiscal year is by using a status quo budget. This budget's for existing staff positions um, and with any known or reasonably anticipated cost increases. Anything that's been continuing on from previous years, it's just status quo, trying to continue how the board operated this fiscal year. So that comes out to the status quo expenditures for next year would be 6.6 .6 million or just a little bit above that. And that includes increased personnel costs of nearly $200,000 in that is a known 1% um, increase to co for cost of living adjustments for, for all staff, for most staff, um, and also associated benefit cost increases calculated by the City of Berkeley's budget office. 
So the status quo budget for this year, or sorry, for the upcoming year is about 138,000 less than this fiscal year FY23's adopted budget. And this is because, you know, there's no one-time allocation to a tenant survey. Um, there's no additional allocations for temp workers for a data cleanup. There's also um, this year, even before the 100,000 to the legal service provider contracts, there were higher than normal expenditures for, for outside legal counsel. So using those, that status quo budget, we can get a baseline revenue requirements for FY24. So in order to pay for the status quo budget, $6.56 million in registration revenue would be required. Um, if the board chose to leave the fees all at their current levels one more year, that would create a just over $710,000 budget deficit for next fiscal year. So staff calculates in order to pay for the status quo budget so it's fully funded, no deficit spending, no, no um, spending down the uncommitted reserve. The board would have to set the fully covered fee at $285 per unit and the measure MM fee at $170 per unit. Now, if the board was going to target the lower end of its reserve, which is eight of its reserve policy, which is 8%, that would allow for a lower fee of 270 fully covered and 162 um, for measure MM. But this would not leave room for such things as the office office relocation. There would be very little extra money to allocate to um, different things such as the office relocation. And again, this is from the 19,600 fully covered and 5,000 partially covered units. So how does how have the board's costs increased since fiscal year 2018-19? This is when the fully covered fee was initially set at $250 per unit. Since then, annual costs have increased by 1.5 million. The cost increase are primarily due to increased personnel costs. That's cost of living adjustments, increase in benefit costs of a total of about $700,000. Then we have some new positions and some staffing model restructuring uh, for example, there's, you know, there's a general counsel position now that didn't exist before. There's separate managers of the public information unit and registration unit where there used to be one. But there's also three new positions have been added after the implementation of Measure MM and, and to help respond to the additional work. So that really is about 75% of that amount, and that's fully paid for by the Measure MM fee. This commissioner stipend has increased by just over $100,000. Building rent has increased per, our, per the contract with 20, 2001 Center Street, but also in 2018-19, the board met in the council chambers, and now we pay a regular fee um, to the Berkeley School Board. So almost $100,000 increase in building rent, and then PC replacement and software licenses. The IT department's um, charges for that have increased um, quite pretty significantly since 2018-19. On the good side, we are saving on the database and support, support and maintenance for our 
our registration and rent tracking database, which is now 3DI, where we were expending for two different consultants and sometimes IT additional IT support with the previous database. So just as a reminder, all this budget, all the, the, the main focus for the budget and what the revenue is paying for is the rent board's core services, which are outreach, counseling, hearings for fully covered unit, hearings, so hearings for fully covered units and mediations for both fully and partially covered units, registration and rent ceiling records and policy, administrative and legal support. So this chart um, is a comparison we do each time we look at the fee levels. The blue is the fee. The orange is the mean or average monthly rent. And the gray line you see is the percentage uh, the it's the percentage of the fee is of that annual rent. So you can see going back to 1991, it used to be over 3%. The fee was over 3% of annual rent. And that has come down significantly, especially since the passage of Casa Hawkins, and it's really fluctuated around 1.3% to 1.7%. And you can see the last few years as the board has left the fee at 250 how that percent has continued to decrease and it reached below 1% for the first time in uh, 2021. And then for this current fiscal year, when it was set, it was at 0.97%. So how does this translate to the current year? Well, average mean rent for the previous calendar year for all units uh, recently rented, Long-term tenants included was 2,154 as of December. Um, translating that between the low and the high since 1998 of 0 0.97 and 1.32 is a fee of $251 to $341. If you wanted to um, make that range a little tighter from 115 to 1.27%, uh, is the fee range of 296 to 328. And just the point, the fee reached 1.32% um, with two fees. There was a base fee that paid for operations and also a $20 fee for RTS, that stands for Rent Tracking System, uh, to fund the de development of a, of a replacement system, which ended up being the 3DI Rent Registry. So another um, comparison that the Budget and Personnel Committee requested was how does this compare to inflation? You can see since June 30 of 2017 um, to December 31st of 2022, so you know, not including um, this six months since we don't have data until the fee is established in July, there's been just about a 16% increase. Um, Translating that to the fee or adding that similar increase to the fee would get you to a $289 fee. If we look at rents in that same time period, it's about an 18% increase to average annual rents, mean rents um, of rent controlled units, and that increase will get you to 297. 
So some considerations for setting the fees for the FY 2023-24 year is closing that budget deficit, which projects to be just over $700,000, to have a measured fee increase. In order, so basically to try to just catch up to what the fee would be had the board been increasing it and not been holding off due to the impacts of the pandemic. Um, increasing capacity, the, the agency is in the process of adding a finance unit and is also interested in relocating offices to have more meeting space and additional office spaces. The committee also recommends the board return target the 16% reserve and not you know, have this bigger range of eight to 16% to really target having at least two months of reserve, two months reserved to cover two months of the board of the agency's operations. And then also to return, consider returning to a pay as you go strategy by the fiscal year 2024 25. Pay as you go is really the best practice strategy. If there's an additional one-time expenditure the board's interested, then that would mean an, a, an, a one-time increase to the fee. If there's a recurring expenditure, such as a new staff position, that would mean the board would commensurately um, increase the fee on a recurring basis. So just some data on the measure MM or partially covered units. Um, average rent for those units in January was just under 3,400. Um, measure MM revenue is approximately 12 to 14% of total revenue. And MM units represent between 18 to 20% of all registered units. So you can hear, see here the same analysis as that chart previously applied to measure MM units. And um, it's inc it, it increased last year because the base fee for the FY21, that it, the owners were charged 150, but that was actually covering one and a half years. So a base, it, the fee was actually 100 even though they were charged 150, $50 was to pay for implementation costs for the previous six months after the passage of MM. So the Budget and Personnel Committee was presented with various options on the fee and um, they asked us some questions and then we, we brought them different options the second time, you know, a tighter, a group of options. And after two meetings of discussing this, this is the recommendation from the Budget and Personnel Committee to the board. It is to set the fully covered registration fee at $290 per unit for FY 2023-24, set the partially covered measure MM fee at $178 per unit, maintain the lower 100% affordable MM unit at $37 per unit, as well as maintain the fraternity and sorority summer rental fee at $70 per unit, and for the board to target the higher end of their reserve at 16%. So that is the end of the presentation, and we'd be happy to take your questions at this point. I will stop the sharing the presentation.
Great, thank you. Um, we have it set that we move to um, public comment, but I think we will, um, if, if any of the commissioners have uh, questions. Not seeing any hands, All right. Commissioner Kelly. Thank you for that presentation. Um, we have a discrepancy or we have a lesser fee for the measure MM units than the fully covered units ostensibly because they're not fully covered. We've had a year, a full year plus of data for that. Is that fee also proportional to our cost to administer those units? You want me to take this, Shana? You can or I can. Okay, you can go ahead. So uh, we're in um, a little over a year, and right now, yes, they are proportionate to what it costs to administer Measure MM right now. Great. I imagine that that may change over time, given this is hardly a indicative time period with the eviction moratorium, but I just wanted to check in on that because I know that had been the desire of the board when we set those fees originally, and I um, think it's a really great estimation. I'm really impressed, I will say, with our staff from... I keep seeing budget projections from when I was originally on the board and then the actuals being so close. Mm -hmm. And I think that says a lot to the um, diligence that staff's done to put these materials together. It's always heartening when you see a mid-year projection line up. Um, I just wanted to check on that. And then the other question I had um, was, there's uh, the database savings were part of the change in the budget projections and not needing to spend as much out of the reserve. There are no anticipated additional um, funds needed for including, I mean, I know there's desires to clean up some of the data systems still. There's not a need for additional one-time funding for that in the coming cycle. I'm gonna tell you now, right at this moment, no. However, um, with 3DI implementation and some of the data cleanup um, that we have experienced, I'm going to assume I wasn't here prior to that, though I'm assuming that the staff wasn't anticipating mm -hmm. this level of cleanup um, and launching of the modules, um, actually getting into them, a public, uh, the public information unit module in particular, uh, based off of some requests for data collection um, and how it is used, we may have to do additional work in regards to that module. So currently right now, no, there is no one-time cost that I can see, but I do see something coming in the future. Okay. So and I want to go back, I'm sorry, okay. Commissioner Kelly, to um, the Measure MM. Mm -hmm. I think that there has been more work also anticipated there as well. So while it is measured to what is what the dollars are now, um, I think that um, staff has said, and looking at some of the numbers, as much work has gone into MM was not what was anticipated. And I think that's important to note. Great. Um, thank you for that. So I guess that's part of why getting our reserves back up matters too, because if we have and unanticipated one-time costs, then the executive director would have the ability to go back and fund that work with our approval. So thank you. If I could add one thing, um, the so in, I think it was the FY 2017-18 is when the board had the $20 additional fee to, to gain the money to do the RTS replacement project. I And that is all, you know, earmarked and reserved for that project. I believe there may still be some money left in that. It, it'll really depend on how much um, is used for this data cleanup. 
but when we bring the the budget in front of the board we'll have we'll have some better numbers on how much is left in that earmarked part of the capital reserve for the for you know for data cleanup or anything related to 3 dx Any other questions from the commissioners? Yes, uh, Commissioner Moreno. Thank you. I have a question. I have a few questions, but I'll um, I'll do my best to keep it brief. I know that this is twenty three twenty four fiscal year. Have you, um, Director Williams, and your team had an opportunity to do a impact analysis related to the increase in staffing, and is there a cost allocation? by program or services rendered for example there are five services listed that the rent board implements is there cost allocation to the budget related to each of those services how much of the budget is for outreach how much of the budget is for counseling etc we don't do cost um, analysis based off of service but based off of unit need um, and so when we implement an ordinance per se, or like measure MM, we, we could do a cost analysis based off of what we think is going to, what we think is going to be required to actually administer that ordinance. So when we're looking at, um, the finance unit per se, it's based off of need. Currently our finance functions are scattered throughout the organization. Some units do budgeting, some units do payroll, and that's not a good way to operate. And so in order to create that additional capacity, we looked at the need to have a finance unit so we can streamline operations in that way. So no, we don't do cost analysis based off of service, but we do based off of need. Thank you. Any other questions from the commissioners? I have another question. Yes, please. Thank you. I appreciate you answering that. The other question that I have is um, your, is there a fiscal forecast across the next three to five years in terms of you showed us a, a graph that had rent, which as a, in my day job as an ED, rent is definitely very expensive. Are you anticipating costs for the next three years? And how can we think about the use of reserve, the non-use of reserves. I know you have a um, a goal of sixteen percent. I'm just wondering about the next three years. What would that? What does that look like? If you all have done that type of forecast yet? So we haven't done an analysis as it relates to three years out. In regards to the relocation, um, actually, the cost per square footage has actually gone down, um, and I'm assuming that would be for pandemic. So we're trying to stay close to what we are paying in rent now. Um, we will go up because we are trying to look for additional square footage to be able to grow. Um, but again, we use the status quo budget model. So it's forecasting one year forward with understanding that we would keep it at the 16% reserve to be able to handle it. Um, and that has happened and that's worked really well historically over time since the report has been established from my, from my knowledge. Um, any more commissioner? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, so we are going to um, move to public comment at this uh, stage. So if um, at this point we don't have anyone um, here with us, and so we'll move directly to um, the Zoom list. Um, and if the board secretary could help uh, indicate if anyone has their hand raised. 
Not at this point, but I'll let you know if, if anyone does. We Thank only you. have th three attendees on Zoom. All right. Two. So then um, I would like us to start with the uh, um, the committee chair for budget and personnel. Um, if you could give us any kind of opening comments. Um, yes, first, I would like to thank Lee for his presentation and also Executive Director Williams for bringing this to us. This um, this is very important. This is important for us to keep operating and keep serving uh, Berkeley. Um, we want to add staff and we want to relocate and we we provide a lot of services to the community. So I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, that we implement these fees. If you look at the data with inflation and cost, um, uh, what folks are charging each month for rent, it doesn't compare to the fee. Um, and it's, I don't believe that it's that much of an increase and we need it for our board to um, to run. And I, I think it's also a good idea that we're targeting the 16% reserve so we can keep ourselves afloat and keep serving um, the folks that voted us in. Thank you, um, Vice Chair um, Alpert. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it was very, there were good reasons why we didn't raise the fee during the pandemic, um, but also the pandemic has, displayed a lot of vulnerabilities and it's displayed a lot of uh, new work that we need to do. We know we have a lot of work that we need to do and new costs related to uh, the eviction moratorium and the end of that moratorium and also just improvements we want to make to the board. And so we haven't raised the fee in a long time. And, um, you know, the the chart, I think, is really illustrative of the fact that it, we are at the lowest level compared to monthly rent or uh, annual rents We're at the lowest level the fee has ever been. For the for the agency, and so uh, definitely, you know, I think it's appropriate. Uh, I really want to thank staff who worked on. Uh, we asked for a lot of information, and they gave us a lot of information. We want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence and making sure that we're setting the fee at the right level. And so, I believe tonight we're only considering the increase for this year, but the recommendation from the Budget and Personnel Committee is anticipating increasing the fee this year and next year. So basically, a two-step um, to get us where we need to be most of the way this year and then the final uh, kind of splitting it in half over two years of increases so as not to have it be too much in one period. Um, so we're, we're not, the motion tonight, correct me if I'm wrong, um, doesn't marry us to anything for next year, but I think we all should go into that understanding that the we're anticipating that same kind of increase for the next time. Um, but yeah, that's it. Thank you. Um, other commissioners? Go ahead. Well, uh, thank you for the presentation. And uh, I mean, I, I think Vice Chair Alpert's already made uh, a lot of the comments that I was going to say. But, you know, I, um, when we're making these kind of decisions, um, you know, I look at what the, the charter says um, around our authority around this. And it, it's very simple. It says the board shall finance its reasonable and necessary expenses by charging landlords annual registration fees in amounts deemed reasonable by the board. And uh, I, I do agree that it was... Um, it was, a, it was a good thing that we did not raise the fee during the pandemic. It was a very difficult time economically uh, for, for many people. But uh, now the local economy has rebounded. In fact, uh, sales tax um, is uh, for 2022 is actually higher than it was in 2019. So now we're doing even better. 
And so I think this is a very appropriate time to do this um, with our um, increased uh, expend expenditures and um, you know, also making sure that we replenish our reserves, I think is very important while we have a strong local economy. And um, I appreciate this, um, again, uh, appreciate staff's work on this. Thank you. Uh, Chair, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to let you know we do have one member of the public with a raised hand. Okay, um, I'm going to finish having discussion, then we'll go back before we take any other actions. Uh, Commissioner Mazzup, please. Uh, thank you, Chair. I just certainly agree with my the comments of my colleagues. I'm learning quickly on the Budget and Personnel Committee, and I appreciated all the work of staff, the information they provided. Um, I, I think the recommendation we're given today is is the right way forward. I think it makes sense given the budget during the pandemic, obviously with good reason, given the financial struggles at the time. Um, the only thing I'll highlight is um, the digital media coordinator position. Uh, I think that is something that's going to be critical as we look three, five, 10 years down the line to have. Um, I know it probably won't happen this budget, but I'm hoping that's something the board will consider next year, um, You know, doing all we can to make sure we have funding for that to happen because I think that medium is really what's going to connect, certainly with younger folks, certainly with the tens of thousands of students who are renters in the city. And frankly, I think it's something as the city as a whole needs to look at. So um, I think this is the right recommendation today, but I just wanted to highlight that as well. Any other commissioners? Commissioner Kelly, please. Oh, I certainly agree with uh, the previous commissioner's comments about the importance of a new media in reaching the younger generation. Also, as a way that we can, through outreach, reduce some of our own costs, I think it's both important to meet people where they're at, but a lot of folks I know in my generation would prefer to be able to go to the website and get their questions answered without talking to a person. Like, no one no one wants to make a phone call. Um, it's great that we have wonderful staff, but a lot of our basic questions like, when is the, it could just be more accessible. And the new website is a really good step in that direction, but it's it's a good step if you know to get there and these other channels will allow us to meet people more where they're at and bring them in. Um, I always want to flag too, as someone who works in media, that we often think of these positions as accessing free resources, Facebook, Twitter, the internet doesn't tend to cost, but we're a lot more successful if you give resources to and budget to your digital folks so that they have tools that they need to create collateral and content um, to promote those things through advertisements and engagement. It's a lot more successful if you put some money with your free media than just free media on its own, uh, which I think is important to note, especially when you're trying to reach um, communities that other people are also trying to reach. It's competitive. Um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions. Um, what were the other... Um, options on the fee structure that were presented to the budget and personnel committee and also do we know when we're engaging in our next round of negotiations with our union leave do you have that information in front of you the options i mean not in front of me i have a recollection i think we looked at everything between that lower if you recall the lower end um the lowest possible fee to get by with the 8% target and then up to, I believe, 330, um, you know, adding, adding 
two or three staff positions and targeting the 16% um, reserve. And I think with the 330, the measure MM fee was something like $205. Um, so that was kind of the range that the committee looked at. And oh, and the second question. So my understanding is all three of the union contracts are, are lined up right now. So they have a cost of living increase that begins around July of 2023 and last that fiscal year. So I think everybody will start negotiations, you know, starting uh, around 2024, or depending on, you know, for that six month before the contracts expire around July of 2024. I can just, the, the contracts for all the SEIU units expire on June 26, 24. Thank you. Yeah, I noticed that the COLA, the cost of living adjustment was listed as one of the um, employment costs. I, I always refer to it as a cost of living adjustment. It's not really a cost of living increase. In fact, the COLA for our staff, it means that they're actually making less money this year than they were last year. It's the same citywide. It's not just at the rent board, but we really do have a very high inflation rate. As we're seeing, we had to set the highest annual adjustment ever for rent. Our staff pays rent. Um, and so I'm just hoping that we're anticipating those personnel costs in our background budgeting materials, especially maybe the second year out. Um, I was just curious too, if there was any desire on the part of staff to have a more aggressive step up, if there's a plan to step up, you know, this year to the current level, you know, 290 and then step up to 320 or whatever that is, there's a big difference between stepping up to 300 and 320 or 295 and, you know, 315 or whatever that is in terms of, of making funds available so close to so many of the one-time expenses we had related to the pandemic and what we are going to anticipate is going to be a very high service year for the rent board. Um, I can't speak from any fortune telling ability, but I would imagine we will have more cases and more services rendered by the rent board in the next 12 months than in the history of the organization. And I just want to make sure that we really are very prepared because we haven't been given any one-time support or resources from the county or from the state. And the only source of income we do have is the fee that we set for ourselves. Um, and so if staff is comfortable with this amount and it feels like it's right, you know, I would just rather add that one more housing counselor position this year when we know we're really going to need it than forecast it out and be, you know, slightly understaffed and, and add it another fiscal year. So then that movie can be achieved without much of a difference in the fee. And so I did want to flag that that may be something for us to consider. Thank you. Thank you. Other comments? Yeah, I would, I would just like to echo the same uh, concern with the eviction moratorium expiring. We are going to be very busy. I mean, the, the board, <laughs> the staff and um, I cannot imagine um, uh, that a more aggressive uh, increase wouldn't be reasonable. It would be well within our reasonability um, requirement. Yeah. Any other comments? Go ahead. I was just wondering, um, Commissioner Alpert, you mentioned the step up or this year, that year. Is there, what does that look like? You know, if you, and how is that 
like how is the percentages of 250 to 290 to three like how are you retaking that into account from like a data perspective like are we aligning these percentages to indicators in the system um, around effectiveness or i'm just i'm just interested in understanding that yeah i think um the executive director can shed a little bit more light i believe during the discussion at the uh, the committee we were mostly just we were looking at where we needed to end up and we split it in half basically over two years so i don't think there was a specific rationale to the specific amount per year it was just getting to the final target but sean if you want to yeah so the the initial ask was um to again make us whole and be able to fully uh, increase our capacity the digital media coordinator um and uh, an additional position and we can't do that um we'll have to wait until we see if we can get um, the next increase when we bring this back again. So this was really to help us be able to get all of our capacity needs met, and we can't do that right now. So we decided to do it in the measured way. Uh, any other um, comments from the board? Yes, go ahead. I think it's just a uh, staff here. Um... I guess what are our I guess what is our ability to increase staff in terms of temporary staff? Um, you know, if we do see a big in or well, we're going to see an influx, but if we say influx perhaps that you know impacts our current staffing level in a negative way, are we able to bring on temporary staff? Is that something that within this budget recommendation um, we'd be comfortable doing if necessary? Um, we we have the ability to bring on temporary staff, and it depends on you know how big. Right now, we have there was a recent um, contract proposal to bring on three temporary staff for the three DI cleanup for six months, and you all graciously approved that, and that's what we have. So temporarily temporary staff we can do, but it also depends on what element of the rent board work they're doing. Temporary staff is not possible or feasible as a as a counselor. Um, registration, administrative tasks, sure, but not necessarily as counseling. So that is not something that we can temporarily put in place at this point, just because of the level of expertise that's required. And just to clarify, I'm guessing that would have to go through, well, I guess we'd like to have the position made already, but the personnel board and, and going through the, I guess, other city HR processes for us to bring on someone like a counselor. I guess my question is, in terms of the temporary staff, I guess it, it's maybe slightly easier for us to do that than, and I guess there's less flexibility in terms of like a counselor position, bringing that on. I wouldn't want to bring a counselor position on again, temporary. Are you talking about a permanent counselor position? Oh, personal permanent counseling position would go through the normal HR process. Um, but again, uh, just to be sure and let you understand that um, a counselor takes six months to a year to become to the level to be able to um, educate and inform the public on the ordinance. So even if we were to bring someone in temporary, temporary counseling wouldn't even really be effective until six months to a year out. Thank you. Any more uh, comments? All right, we're, um, I understand that there is some more public comment. Uh, let's go back to, to public comment. So, <clears throat> Anonymous, go ahead and speak whenever you're ready.
Uh, you need to unmute yourself on your end so that we can hear you. Whoever is logged in under the name Anonymous, we're ready to hear you speak if you're ready. So that person is still on mute. And I, I don't have the ability to unmute them, so. Okay. Um, stalling for a few seconds. All right, so unless there's some other uh, hands raised, um, and if the commissioners don't have any other comments, last call. All right, then I'm gonna go ahead and close the public hearing. And we're going to move now to um, action items. All right. So the um, first item is um, an opportunity for me to talk <laughs> regarding the chair update, and I, I don't have any tonight. Um, so we'll be moving to the next item. Um, so the next three items, B, C, and D, all relate to um, what we just discussed. Um, we're going to um, take these votes one at a time. And I'm going to start, um, I'm going to make the, the motion, hopefully to get a second, and then there can be any discussion. So I'm going to make the motion to recommend and adopt resolution 2306. Setting the fiscal year 2023-2024 annual registration fee for fully covered units. This would be due July 3rd, 2023 at $290 per unit. Second. Thank you. Um, any comments or questions? Seeing none, we'll um, move to a vote. I think I'll do a roll call for this if that's okay. Please. Uh, Alpert. Aye. Elkstrand. Yes. Johnson. Yes. Kelly. Yes. Marrero. Yes. Martinek. Yes. Mizell. Yes. Walker. Yes. Simon Weisberg. Yes. Motion carries unanimously. We did it, Pop. Um, we're now going to move to um, to C, um, which is I'm again going to make the motion to uh, for recommendation to adopt resolution 2307, setting the fiscal year 2023-2024 annual registration fee for partially covered measure MM units, due July 3rd, 2023, at 178 per unit. Can I get a second? Second. Thank you. Um, are there any comments or questions from the board? And I'm just gonna confirm that there were no hands raised. No, still none. Okay. Sorry, was that second, um, Commissioner Walker? It was. Okay, thank you. So ready for a roll call vote? Yes, please. All right. Uh, Alpert? Aye. Elkstrand? Yes. Johnson? Yes. Kelly? Yes. Marrero? Yes. Martinak? Yes. Mizell? Yes. Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. 
Motion carries unanimous. Great. We're now going to move on to D, um, which is the committee recommendation that we adopt resolution 2308, setting the fiscal year 2023-2024 annual registration fee for partially covered measure MM units in affordable housing projects due July 3rd, 2023 at 37 per unit. Can I get a second? I'll second it. Thank you, Commissioner Herrero. Any other comments or questions from, yes, Commissioner Kelly. So I understand why we would set fees that are less for nonprofits and affordable housing certainly is, you know, I just don't understand how we get to the 37 and I'd like to understand what that's based on. I believe it was the same ratio increase, but uh, Commissioner uh, Director Williams. Unfortunately, that was before my time of why that is, but I think uh, Leaf will be able to speak better to that. Yeah, so this was, this came up to the board's attention by um, affordable housing service providers. They, I think they brought it to the budget and personnel committee. So at this time, the board was looking at a fee that would cover both um, six months of FY 2021 and then the FY 21-22 year. So it was set at $25 per unit and then $12, $12.50 was used for recovery for that six months. And then the committee decided to just round down to $37. And then last year, the that was just to maintain the same fee level at 37. So that's really how um, my recollection of how the board got there. Okay, thank you. Any other comments or questions from commissioners? All right, um, and are there any hands raised from the, the audience? None. Okay. So um, I'm again going to make a motion to adopt resolution 2308, setting the fiscal year 2023-2024 annual registration fee for partially covered measure MM units in affordable housing projects at $37 per unit. I'll second. I'll second. Commissioner Marrero had already seconded. Oh. And then we had discussion, so. Am I just repeating myself? Awesome. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for everyone just playing along. Um, can we uh, vote? Yes. Alpert? Aye. Elkstrand? Yes. Johnson? Yes. Kelly? Yes. Marrero? Yes. Martin Hack? Yes. Mizell? Yes. Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. Motion carries unanimously. All right. So we have one more on this genre of resolutions. Um, this is uh, the committee recommendation that we adopt resolution 2309, setting the summer rental period registration fee for fraternities and sororities for fiscal year 2023 through 2024 at $70 per unit. Can I get a second? Second. Thank you, Commissioner Maisel. Um, we are now, any comments or questions? All right. Um, and any hands raised from the audience? None. All right. Uh, can we please uh, do a, a roll call vote? 
Alpert? Aye. Elkstrand? Yes. <clears throat> Johnson? Yes. Kelly? Yes. Marrero? Yes. Martinak? Yes. Mizell? Yes. Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. Motion carries unanimously. Great, thank you. Um, I just want to congratulate staff and commissioner and um, Director Williams for passing your first fee and thus budget. All right, I'm going to uh, keep us moving. Um, I'd like to ask uh, Commissioner Johnson if you'd like to introduce the next item. Sure, I'd be happy to give a little bit of context and background on it. So, um, and conjunction with sort of other work that I've been going on, we've been doing a lot of advocacy around fair chance housing, which as you all know, is the law in the city of Berkeley. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with it, what it essentially does is it prohibits the usage of criminal background checks in most um, rental application processes in the city of Berkeley. There's a few exceptions, but um, by and large, it, it covers uh, the majority of properties in the city of Berkeley. Um, and the reason behind this policy is that there's been a clear demonstrated connection between homelessness and uh, incarceration in people's criminal histories and that um, if you have a criminal history, you're like sometimes around like 10 times as likely to face homelessness as those folks who um, don't have criminal histories. And so um, this legislation is making a big impact in the city of Berkeley. Some preliminary studies have been from UC Berkeley have found that about one out of three formerly incarcerated people surveyed has been able to obtain housing as a direct result of the Fair Chance Housing Ordinance being passed in Berkeley. And so we're working as part of a statewide campaign to um, actually get the ordinance passed in other local jurisdictions, but in addition, getting it passed at the state of California level. And so Senator Wahab has graciously introduced um, actual fair chance legislation. There's been other pieces of legislation that have been introduced that are that have been much more sort of tamped down and not really encompassing what, what uh, the formerly incarcerated community has really been wanting. Um, but this piece of legislation as introduced um, really does serve as a model piece of legislation um, by all accounts. And so um, I, I'm, I think this uh, chance for us to kind of voice our support for it, I think is crucial because there is already a lot of pressure to um, kind of widow down the legislation to make it be not as strong. And so any support from community members across the state of California that can encourage really strong model fair chance legislation is gonna help move the needle forward in any of the parts of the conversation. Um, so with that, I'll, I'm happy to answer any questions, provide more additional details in the legislation, but um, I think that's a good kind of overview of what it is and, and how it operates for the most part. Anyone wanna make a comment or question? I see Commissioner Kelly light, Kelly's light going on. Oh, I just want to say that I am really glad to see this legislation being introduced statewide. I'm amazed at the impact it's had locally. Not that I was skeptical, but it takes a lot of time for most policies to have an impact. And I think most people still don't even know that we've passed this law. Mm -hmm. And it's been impactful so quickly. I mean, that's really heartening. Um, so anything we can do to support this. And I think that we have a particular testament because we have passed it that we can say what happened. That's very different than saying we think this is a good idea. We can say this is the impact it's had. Um, and so I hope also that we can maybe, you know, we always send a letter when things are important, but maybe we can also try to send some testimonials or direct some folks who have benefited that we know of um, as an agency or, or send our own staff to testify what we've experienced in a, in a narrative, which I think is also stronger. So thank you for bringing this forward. Thank you. Um, I also just want to highlight, well, 
yeah, I'll get everybody. I just want to highlight that um, we are the administrating body, so it, it's very close to home. And um, want to, you know, I think that, you know, it, it's not only heartening that it's working, but it's heartening that we're, you know, hopefully part of that enforcement. Um, all right, uh, Commissioner Maisel, did you have your, um, and then did someone over here, and then Commissioner Moreto. Yes, no, thank you, Chair, and I want to thank you and Commissioner Johnson for, for bringing this forward and obviously for your advocacy on the state level for this. Um, I mean, I think this legislation is critical. I think, as our Commissioner has mentioned, we've seen the benefits already in our city. And I think when we talk about incarceration as a whole, this is the type of things we have to see. Um, you know, you're looking at really a, a system that has thousands of collateral consequences for being incarcerated. And we often ask, well, why aren't we seeing the results we want recidivism? Why aren't we seeing people change supposedly? And yet we make every step as hard as possible for the people once they return. So I think this legislation is a no-brainer. I think we need to get it done at the state level. I'd love to help and support in ways I can. And yeah, I, I'm just really glad to see this brought forward at, at the state level. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Marado. Thank you. I want to um, appreciate um, the commissioner for bringing this forward as well and my work on the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. Um, since 2016, there was a focus on reducing the prison pipeline. And as you know, black and brown young people are the first to um, kind of be channeled into this pipeline. And so the Fair Chance Ordinance really addresses pursuits around racial equity. So I appreciate this. And um, Senator Wahab, who is a personal friend of mine, that we are um, going to be adamant about change at the state level as well as the national level. So thank you so much. All right. Any other comments or questions? And if not, I'd invite a motion. I'll make the motion to move the adoption of the recommendation. I'm not wording that right. Okay. <laughs> it's well, it's action to send a letter. The letter, the letter. Yeah. Um, can I get a second, please? I'll second. Sorry? Okay. <laughs> I, I heard Commissioner Morrow. Was that wrong? I guess I. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Um, so then we'll take a, a vote. And then I will just ask, though, um, I don't believe there's a letter drafted yet. Is that right? Okay. But um, Commissioner Johnson, you can help me do that. Okay. Okay. So we can do a voice vote. Um, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. Abstain. Motion carries unanimously. Great. Um, another great action by uh, State Senator Wahab um, is number, is G. And I um, I believe that Commissioner Elstrand and Commissioner Kelly both independently um, suggested we do this. So I don't know if we want to flip a coin about who wants to introduce it. I I'll go ahead and uh, introduce it. Um, yeah, because I, also I know that the, the city council has also um, passed a, a resolution in support of this. Uh, I was actually thinking of doing it in my capacity, but I was beaten to it. But luckily I was not beaten to it this time. Um, you know, I, I thought this was a very uh, appropriate uh, thing to introduce. Um, you know, I, I've been saying for many years, and I, I'm sure well, we all have, about how... Um, 
how much of an impediment Costa Hawkins has been to um, you know, achieving our, um, our rent control. Um, you know, two of the biggest issues, uh, as you all know, is that um, it allows for vacancy decontrol and it also exempts uh, new construction from ever uh, being covered under rent control. And in Berkeley, the definition of new construction is anything built after 1980. 43 years is considered new, which just it, when we when we look into the future, and I'm talking about decades in the future, we're going to have a serious crisis where um, you know where rent control buildings are, you know, for whatever reason. Um, well, I mean, I don't need to go into the details. We all all know all this, but. Um, so you know this this bill introduced by uh, uh, Senator Wahab um, would um, allow new construction to be um, uh, to be under rent control uh, fifteen years after its construction. I know in the past we have uh, supported um, similar um, proposals. Um, unfortunately, the, um, there hasn't been action done by the state yet, but we'll see where this item goes. And I. Um, I hope you all um, be supportive of this as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Kelly, did you want to add? Sure. Um, I just wanted to thank Commissioner Alstrom for his work putting together the packet. Um, I'll be brief because we all know about Costa Hawkins, but the more I do this work around affordable housing, the more it is when someone starts to make common sense about how to solve the housing crisis, a lawyer raises their hand and says Costa Hawkins. Mm. And it's, it's not the fault of the lawyer. It's a really good, bad piece of legislation. It's not even common sense. It just says no to any effort to be reasonable, to any effort for landlords and tenants to come together, to any effort for people who own property and people who want to rent property to come to some kind of agreement about what might be affordable at three and a half percent over 10 years, or do you pay rent on time and are a perfect tenant? You know, there's no there's no negotiation with Costa Hawkins, and so the answer is to get rid of it and start over and come up with common sense legislation. I'm really heartened to see that that's what this new generation of lawmakers is doing in Sacramento, because this wasn't ever brought forward as a thoughtful policy position. This is just the just say no to affordable housing. So we need to just say no to Costa Hawkins and get rid of it. Thank you. Well said. Um, uh, Vice Chair um, Alpert. Uh, yeah, I agree. Second to everything that's been said. Um, and thank you to the uh, members who brought this forward. I want to point out that if this measure passes, it will allow uh, buildings to be subject to rent control after 15 years, though our ordinance currently, uh, we passed a mallet measure uh, in 2018, which said, which anticipated the repeal of Costa Hawkins and would allow rent control on buildings after 20 years. Of course, our board recommended 15 years. The council overwrote, uh, overwrote us and said 20 years instead. So if this does pass, which I don't, I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath, but I'm fingers crossed. Um, maybe we will uh, ask the council to go back and correct their mistake. So that was my one comment. All right. Any other uh, comments? Can I um, get a motion? I'll, um, I'll go ahead and make the motion to uh, submit the letter in support of SB 466. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. Uh, Commissioner Kelly. Thank you. Ready for a vote? Yes, please. All those in favor? Aye. Say aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? Motion carries unanimously. Great. 
Uh, just checking on time. Okay, we've got 15 more minutes before we'll need to pause for captioner. Um, we're going to move on to information announcements, um, articles of media. Uh, so the first thing will be um, the update on council's recent action at the city's eviction moratorium. Uh, General Counsel Brown, did you wanna speak? Yeah, um, the next three items uh, are gonna be handled by legal and I'll be taking the first two and Ollie the second. Um, Amy, uh, uh, can you start sharing the PowerPoint please for 9A? I'll just start talking um, while she's doing that. As, as many of you probably know um, and probably uh, witnessed on Tuesday night, Council adopted on first reading um, changes to the eviction moratorium to extend what would be considered the covered period. Um, it was on first reading. You can go to the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, so the existing moratorium, as you know, um, prohibits all evictions, except for those that are necessary to preserve the health and safety of other occupants. Um, so that's a very specific reason. Um, and council um, received word from the community um, that there was some interest in extending the moratorium beyond uh, the quote unquote covered period, which was in the the current version of the ordinance is connected squarely to the state local state of emergency. Um, so uh, the existing moratorium does allow landlords to recover delinquent rent that accrues during the covered period, um, but may not use that delinquent rent as a good cause to evict once that covered period expires. Uh, you can go to the next slide, please. So the amendments that were adopted um, on uh, Tuesday night on first reading um, would extend the covered period regardless of what happens with the state of emergency uh, to May 1st, uh, 2023. They, they made a change in the dais to say the end of the day on April 30th. Um, so that would be the very last day of the, of the quote unquote covered period, meaning that that would be the last day when uh, nobody can be evicted for any reason other than health and safety reasons. And then starting May 1st, there are a couple of additional grounds um, where uh, uh, people can start to be evicted. Uh, one being owner move-in notices um, starting May 1st. Uh, so any uh, notice uh, can start to be served on March 1st, which is obviously 14 days ago. Sorry, 16 days ago. Um, and then, and then, of course, also um, starting May 1st, uh, tenants may be evicted now or then um, for uh, non-payment of rent that accrues after May 1st. It's a very important point. If a tenant has delinquent rent that accrued during the period from March 17th, 2020 until April 30th, 2023, that tenant is still protected in their home. However, if a tenant fails to pay rent after May 1st, that tenant will be exposed to an eviction for non-payment of rent unless they can prove that their reason that they couldn't pay rent was due to COVID impact. That's following May 1st. And that period lasts until, can you go to the next slide, please? Um, 
that period lasts until September 1st of 2023. So basically the last day of August. And then anything owed after September 1st would be according to the rules of our ordinance, the regular non-payment of rent uh, rules. These amendments, again, were adopted on first reading. They was adopted on consent. So there was no, uh, there was no, um, uh, there were no opposing voices um, to it. Um, and uh, they uh, mentioned on a dais that they would bring a second reading on March 21st, so next Tuesday. Uh, if they adopt it then, and I anticipate, I, I can't say for sure, but I anticipate that it will go through, um, then it would become active on April 20th or April 21st. So just in time for the covered period to end on May 1st. Uh, so this would give a time certain um, when that transition period would start and the actual covered period for full protection would end. That's the uh, the Reader's Digest version of it. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Yeah, I just had a quick question um, with the owner move-in evictions, because um, I say that... Um, I'll, I'll just read for what the um, ordinance, the proposed ordinance says. Um, notice for um, for owner moving um, evictions uh, may be served beginning March 1st, 2023, and may be the basis for unlawful detainer complete beginning of May 1st. So I don't understand the March 1st date if the ordinance, assuming it passes on second reading, doesn't go into effect on April 20th. So like, how does that work? Well, you're making an argument that somebody in court will have to make. Um, so, I mean, that's the allowance that um, that 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 council made. Um, if there is uh, somebody who who um, uh, wants to challenge the applicability of it as to when the notices can be served, they'll do so in court. Yes, uh, council. I Thank you for that information. I want to ask, so what is the documentation folks need to present in terms of showing um, that they were impacted by COVID in terms of non-payment? It's a good question. Um, the ordinance, uh, the way it's written right now, says that you have to uh, prove that it was by COVID, you had COVID impact as the reason, but that a um, uh, a declaration signed under penalty of perjury shall suffice as proof um, that you uh, um, that you had a COVID impact that prevented you from being able to pay the the rent or the full rent. So, I mean, if I'm looking at it as a lawyer um, defending the case, I would say you know the best thing that I would submit would be some proof of income that was uh, impacted by either caring for somebody with COVID or your, uh, the person themselves who is the, um, um, you know, the, the responsible for the rent having an impact for it, that would certainly be the best thing to, 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 to submit. But in the absence of any of, the, of, of those things or some kind of declaration from employer that they had to be laid off or they had their hours restricted or something like that um, would be great too. But in the absence of that, the ordinance does provide um, for a declaration of penalty of perjury to serve as an affirmative defense. Another important thing, just in case anybody is watching or will watch, is that that needs to be um, uh, provided to the landlord 
um, before the notice period ends. So as everybody in the dais understands, that's a three-day notice. You got to get it quickly. So anybody who is not paying rent after May 1st should have their documentation in order and be prepared to provide that to the landlord before the three days ends. Otherwise, they are going to be um, at a well, they're going to be exposed to an unlawful detainer complaint being filed. You can't give it afterwards. So after the three-day notice expires, even if you were impacted by COVID, you wouldn't be able to prove that in court unless you alleged it prior to the um, expiration of the three days. Uh, so thank you for that. It seems like something we'll have to do as much outreach as we can for. Um, I guess one quick additional question. Um, I guess from, from your reading of this ordinance and, and perhaps applicable state laws, is there anything that binded the city council to making the time certain date that they did? I know the city of San Leandro extended their moratorium an entire year. Um, is there any legal differentiation between those in, in terms of the powers used? I don't think, I, I, I suppose, um, I don't think they were bound by it, but I think that they felt more comfortable with it. I'm going to call oh. on myself. Oh, sorry, if you're not. No, you're still, that, that's a fair answer. Thank you. Um, I d I'm not, I didn't suggest the, that you could only provide the evidence at that time, but those dates are my fault <laughs> um, because when we were proposing them, we thought we were really lucky if we could get that far. Um, I also think it's important to point out that San Leandro has no protections locally. Um, and they only are, the, their moratorium is very, very narrow. Where ours is you can't evict for a breach of lease, which I think it's, we're worried, very worried that that's going to be what landlords are going to go after is, um, is breach of lease. Um, I also wondered if staff had started thinking through ways we are going to do outreach um, around this, uh, particularly in light of this section, which, to be frank, I didn't know about because the what I what I had proposed did not include that, that it was only a trial that you'd um, have to provide the evidence. But um, that makes me even more eager for us to get some of the um... sorry. Um... Uh, I, I don't want to speak over Shauna here, but I know that I've been in discussions um, with the public information unit about their proposed um, outreach and um, certainly um, preparing a script, preparing some slides that can be available on the website um, that deal with sort of a higher level discussion of this. I mean, um, the points are fairly simple as they exist, but the details are important. I mean, I would be interested in us not only sending out emails um, to those that we have, but also, um, you know, to, for us to consider doing a mailer. I mean, particularly to anyone who has requested rental assistance over the last three years. We, we, are, we are working on a really rather intensive communication plan as it relates to the eviction moratorium that will include basically all methods and modems of communication. Um, but a mailer, just, just putting it out there is very expensive. So we would be looking to the city to be able to assist in that. Yeah, I think it would be appropriate for them since the moratorium is, is theirs. Um, uh, Vice Chair Alpert, and then did anyone else want to be in the queue? Yeah. Okay. 
then it'll be Commissioner Kelly after. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Um, and, I'll, and I'll discuss it a little bit more when we get to the um, committee update from the outreach committee. But, um, you know, we're talking with the city people, not me, but people are talking to the city about budget allocation. This is the city's ordinance. And so we can't be expected to pay for it entirely by ourselves. Um, but definitely, I think we should be considering, you know, if we're going to be doing a mailing, sending out, including in that mailing, uh, filling your name here, this is the form to attest, right? Like I underline attest under penalty of perjury sign so that they literally they can just take it out of the envelope, put their information down and present it to their landlord. Because um, I know it is not fun to have to, when you are not a lawyer, deal with legal paperwork. Um, it can be very intimidating. And just giving them that pre-filled uh, will be, a, for some folks, a really big um, barrier taken away. Uh, Commissioner Kelly? Tonight, Commissioner Albert and I spend a lot of time together. Um, I was just going to see that I would love for us to have whatever we can in terms of templates on our website. I always love templates because it eliminates uncertainty when you print something and fill it out and then you can scan it and someone can look at it for you. But exactly, like what, what form do you attest? What information do you have to include? It's so nerve-wracking. And even when you're getting good advice, it's the advice sounds really good on the phone. And then you're like, wait, am I, did I write down the exact thing that the person on the phone told me to say? If there's, a, if there's any way we can make templates or something like that, especially on a three-day turnaround, um, and give examples. I, I saw, I think the San Francisco Committee for Human Rights had really, really good examples on their website of like what is justification under the San Francisco ordinance. And it reminded you of things like loss of a roommate because of COVID, like, you know, unemployment that originated. They had really good justifications that were really clear. Um, and then, of course, there's other examples that were not there, but I thought it was really good documentation that they were providing that was really actionable from a, like, self-service perspective. Our model is to, like, assist in the service, but I think if, you know, when someone talks to a housing counselor, we could also provide them, like, a pre-designed form that they could sign. That would be really helpful and a really good service for the public. Thank you. So Commissioner Kelly and Vice Chair Alpert, I can speak to this very briefly. Uh, one of the prior iterations of state COVID law protections had a sort of a declaration type procedure and the rent board provides one or provided one for that applicable time period on the website. We intend to sort of update that and make it uh, uh, consistent with the, the amendments to the ordinance. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I also just wanted to add that our website is actually really good compared to a lot of the other agencies. I was trying to help someone in San Francisco yesterday, and I couldn't even find on the city website if their eviction moratorium was in effect, and our stuff kept coming up, which was really helpful. But you know, the work that is being done matters, and it is appreciated. The, the website is mostly maintained by Jen Fabish, and we'll make sure to pass on our compliments of Jen's hard work. Uh, Commissioner Moreto. Um, Thank you. I wanted to just mention this as a point of interest and concern. I feel very concerned about um, seniors with dementia. And I mentioned this several times on several different committees because the likelihood that they might forget they owe anything is very high. And then to your point about the time period of having to flip documentation over, lots of times 
communication within the family network may not be may not be conducive to getting that documentation in. So this is an area that I'd like to talk to you some more about, Chair, um, about like what are some things that that we can do at the state level to um, protect um, individuals with dementia or who have severe memory loss and really are just not able to um, remember that they over it. Thank you. Well, I, I would say that um, in any of these cases, you, you kind of, I don't know, Hail Mary is the right expression, but you can ask for a reasonable accommodation and you can always, there's a, a motion that can be filed that it, there's a hardship motion that are often used in those kinds of um, settings. They only work when you have a lawyer representing you, which is a big challenge, uh, less so for tenants in Berkeley, because we've done a good job of almost providing universal representation. But outside of the rent control jurisdictions, you know, people are very unlikely to get representation. So it's much, much harder. Um, but I think I just want to also, you know, we've been very lucky in Alameda County. Um, we have not had to have this process. The rest of the state had to do this during the entire pandemic. And that's why so many people still got evicted during this period. And it was one of the things we really fought for was that you didn't have to prove it. And that it was just, you know, it was just assumed because it's going to be almost impossible. And Los Angeles, the entire time, has had this requirement that you had to prove that it was COVID related. And as a result, they've never had enough lawyers to even cover the people being evicted during the pandemic. And um, so it is it is going to be a huge issue. I think the 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 hope was that at least some people, and I think it's going to be easier for us here in Berkeley because we're smaller, because of all, lots of different reasons. But I do worry for, for Oakland where they, you know, the ratio of legal services per, per tenant is not the same. There's still also, I mean, it's a larger population, but they're going to do the same, you know, ramp down, step down where, you know, we're going to start saying, okay, if you you know, if you're not paying your rent for another reason, you may not have the same protections. Um, but it is, you know, I we're going to start seeing what's happened around the rest of the state. Um, we have had the lowest number of evictions in the state. And it's because we did not create these little loopholes and games that um, unkind landlords could could take advantage of. Um, so I am, uh, I, I, mind, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it should not be at the notice stage. I think that's that's troubling. Um, so I'm I don't, I'm not sure what to do about that. Except you know I'm we're going to have to take it. Is something I think we should um, speak to our electeds about. Um, I think it should only be at the day of court. I think that tenants should provide it. Landlords can ask um, so that the landlords can make informed decisions whether they go forward. But the idea that they have one moment to do it. Um, we know that that's a problem. We know three days isn't enough when you have a breach of lease, when you have a non-payment. So I think for us to say that in three days, someone's supposed to be able to do this um, is not, I hope that that is a troubling part of the, the ordinance. Um, yeah. So we should maybe follow up on see if we want to clarify that because I, it is my opinion, best practice would be that you only had to prove it at court, but again, you know, Hopefully, but landlords are going to, even if you give them all of that evidence, they still have the right to go to trial and say, well, I just don't believe you. Um, so it seems like it should go both ways. So um, I hope there's, there's another interpretation of it. But um, I mean, obviously, I've 
total confidence in our legal staff. So, but maybe something we want to follow up with. Uh, any other comments or questions on this item? And okay, if not, I'm going to just end this item um, and then we'll take a 10 minute break um, for the capture. I want to look at the brochure. So, commissioners, just a note that the Zoom meeting will remain open. <laughs> Pardon? No, you have to mute yourself. So there.
All right, uh, let's get the gang back together. So we are, um, all right, we, <laughs> general counsel, uh, it, you're on the hot seat once again. Uh, we are at um, 9B, update on limited post-emergency options for remote participation in board and committee meetings. I think you are going to review that for us. Thank you, Chair. Um, so uh, you all got a memo that we prepared for you in the packet. Hopefully you found that helpful. Uh, I'm going to go over some a few high-level slides tonight to highlight some of the um, uh, primary ways in which the law changed and ways in which, uh, first of all, it's great to see everybody in person tonight, um, And uh, but the ways in which the law currently allows for people to participate remotely. So, Amy, is there a way that you can make this a full screen with... Uh, Just like you did for the last one. Okay, terrific. Uh, can you move to the next slide, please? That was very 1980. Do you want to just go ahead and present without the slides? Or... No. Uh, yeah, but my notes are on the slide. I mean, my yeah, prompts yeah. are on the slides. You can just hit number two, right? Okay. So um, uh, there used to be only one way to participate remotely um, for uh uh, public meetings for um, for committees and elected officials, and that was that you had to provide your uh, notice on the agenda that you intended to participate remotely, that you were not going to be at the physical location where the public could gather, um, and that was um, uh, you had to um, provide your address um, that could be put onto the uh, official meeting agenda. You had to make your, uh, the place where you were going to be participating, you had to make it publicly accessible and you had to post a notice um, um, on that uh, at your meeting location. And that meant that if you were participating from your living room, 
um, which has happened in Berkeley, um, that uh, members of the public um, or interested members would uh, uh, be entitled to come into your home and, um, and participate with you. Um, that option still exists. Um, you are able to uh, uh, notify uh, the public that you are going to be participating um, remotely. Uh, you can do that either from within city limits or anywhere else in the world, as long as you make it accessible. Um, but now there's a second method uh, that involves two subcategories where you can, uh, you have unanticipated uh, remote participation, where there's some sort of family emergency that happens or some other reason why you're not able to be at the meeting. Uh, and those uh, rules went into effect at the beginning of this calendar year. Go ahead, Amy. Thank you. Um, I already went through the anticipated remote uh, participation. I'm going to burn through these uh, slides. Um, the, the only thing that I'll say on this slide, particular slide, is that there is no limit to the number of times that you're able to participate remotely when you put it on the notice. So if you put it on the notice, you can take every single meeting that you want um, from outside of the uh, central location where the meeting is occurring. You can go to the next slide, please. But now there are two uh, subcategories for unanticipated remote participation. Um, they come with certain limitations. Uh, uh, the one limitation that there is not is that you don't have to uh, notify us uh, and the public uh, prior to doing it. Uh, but you are only allowed two times per year uh, doing this. And that uh, applies to uh, think of each committee um, and uh, and all board meetings as separate legislative bodies. So if you are on two committees um, and one, um, and, and of course the board, then you would be permitted absences for these two reasons, two times a year for each one. So two times a year, let's just say for the outreach committee, two times a year for the Lyra committee, and two times a year for the full board meetings. Um, you have to have a just cause or emergency circumstance, and I'll explain what that is in the next slide. Um, you, uh, for emergency circumstances, there's some obscure provision of the Brown Act that um, actually uh, makes it so that the committee or the board has to approve of your participation uh, remotely for emergency circumstances. And in that event, uh, you've got to uh, give a brief description of why you are, per, uh, you are doing this. You don't have to disclose anything that's medically private or anything else. Uh, you also have to disclose uh, all of the individuals that are in the room are at your remote location that are uh, over 18 years old. Um, and most importantly, there needs to be a quorum of the board uh, that must be at the physical location where the meeting is occurring, where the public can gather. Um, and so that is important, uh, particularly, probably less so for um, board meetings when there were almost always, I'm assuming, be at least five people present here, but much more important for committee meetings where you have three or even three or four um, people, because if you have only two of three or two of four, or rather two of four present at a, um, um, at a committee meeting, and you have uh, one person who is participating remotely in an anticipated way, meaning that their address is on the agenda itself, and one person who has an emergency circumstance that comes up, they get into a car, car crash, their kid is sick, whatever it is, um, then uh, uh, that person would not be able to, to use this because there is not a quorum of the committee present. So there, 
I mean, in committees of three, two people need to be present. In committees of four, three people need to be present in order for somebody to participate under this, this reason. Uh, we actually just had this. So we had a, a dry run of this where a commissioner called in to the outreach committee meeting um, and there were three people present. So that commissioner was able to participate remotely. Um, next slide, please. So very broadly, or rather more specifically speaking, um, just cause um, is that you have a child or family caregiving um, uh, responsibility. Uh, you have a contagious illness um, that would prevent you from, um, from coming and participating in a public place. Um, there, you have a need related to a physical or mental disability um, that can't be accommodated uh, and travel on official board business. Uh, an emergency circumstance would be a family or uh, physical or family uh, medical emergency that prevents in-person attendance. These somewhat bleed into each other. Um, and I, I think that the distinction is less important given that if you use one, it counts towards the whole for the other. So in other words, if you say one month, you can't come for just cause, and then the, and then four months later, you can't come for emergency cir circumstance, then that's your two. It, you, don't, you don't get two of each, in other words. That's a, a broad overview. Um, I'm happy to take any questions or discuss anything uh, more thoroughly if you need it. So I, I just, you know, um, as someone who um served before the pandemic um it was actually kind of a, a a more than often problem um of people not not as not having quorum for committee meetings and it was an enormous waste of staff time um community members and so you know we are required committees are as required as these um commission hearings and um, you, if you miss them, you act, it actually gets taken out of, you know, our monthly pay, just like if you didn't go to work, you wouldn't get paid for no reason. And so I really, um, we, we generally, if people aren't able to attend, um, you know, we generally allow folks to make a motion to, to bring it back. I, I really want us to take this seriously and people need to think ahead, including myself. There was recently a meeting that I completely spaced. And if there had not been quorum, I would have, you know, that would have been for naught. And so including me, um, you know, we really need to take it seriously because it is harder. The BART is late or what have you. Um, and as maybe workplaces are, are less, um, folks are having to go back into their offices, it's going to be hard. So we just, out of respect for the staff and the time, please, please, please take it very seriously. And I, I want us to take it seriously if folks miss, um, you know, yeah, let's just really have a high expectation about this. So. Any other questions? Oh, I just realized you can't see my hand. <laughs> if, if the board doesn't have any other questions, I just wanted to make a comment. So as a corollary to something that Matt mentioned, that our general counsel mentioned, um, in order to participate uh, remotely, when you know in advance that you say you'll be out of town, I will need that address in order to publish it on the agenda, and I will need that by the agenda deadline. So for a board agenda deadline, that would be the same one that's published in your packet. For committee agenda deadlines, 
we don't have that sort of pre-published, so you'll have to work with your committee staffer, but it, it will be really important, not um, as the chair said, to, to not uh, just bear that in mind, but also to communicate with staff so that we know and can properly agendize that. Because if the agenda for any, for a board meeting, for a committee meeting has already been published, um, it is a tremendous waste of staff's time to have to go back and republish everything simply to add that address. So that would be bare minimum of 72 hours before that legislative body meets. Um, obviously, with the board agenda, again, we have our own deadline, which is the Monday prior to a Thursday meeting with committee agendas. Um, I think to make it easier, we I might suggest that we bring that staff bring forward an item at the next meeting to update the board's meeting procedures to sort of codify that in the meeting procedure so that it's very, very clear. But that's that's it. Um, one thing I just would like to add, if um, if um, Commissioner, I mean, uh, Director Williams, it's because you're going to be a commissioner in another uh, city. Um, Director Williams, um, if maybe you could just make sure that all of the staff that staff our committees can remind folks at the end of each meeting, you know, are you going to be present and that people get used to thinking a month ahead, are they going to be able to? Thanks. I have us move on unless there's other questions. Um, next is the owner move-in eviction tracking report. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, I think this is my item here, and I, I also have a slideshow, um, but it does not have clip art like leafs. But, um, and this was presented to the eviction section eight committee last week, and I think, um, here we go. So we can go to the second slide, please, Amy. Good one. There we go. All right. So, so sort of as a broad overview, our ordinance permits evictions when the owner um, intends to use the rental unit as their principal residence or the principal residence of their spouse, child, or parent for 36 consecutive months. That's a good cause for eviction. Um, to, to, to put a slight point on it, the owner move-ins, which will become permitted under the proposed changes to the COVID moratorium, are more are narrow to that. It only allows an owner who owns one rental property in Berkeley to move in for their own use, not the family use. But um, once the proposed transition period ends, um, all owner move-ins will be permitted again, presumably. Um, the ordinance also places additional restrictions on owner eligibility to, to uh, make to make these evictions, uh, the timing of these evictions and requires a relocation payment to the tenant similar to an Ellis eviction. Uh, in the ordinance, it, the, the, it requires the rent board staff to report to the board um, uh, twice a year. Um, and so, you know, on, on sort of the implement, implementation of this part of the ordinance. And so we have sort of a tracking and verification system for these properties. And we track the properties in the 36 months in which it is supposed to be used under the ordinance as the principal residence of either the owner or, or their family member. Um, and we release this report to, we start with the eviction section eight committee and we do it twice a year. Uh, and so it are at our meeting, I guess that was last week, last week at our meeting, uh, I presented the most recent reporting period. So it's a moving 36 month window um, that just so happens to capture essentially every month of the COVID moratorium. Um, uh, owner movement evictions were always prohibited under the COVID moratorium. And so, so essentially in this last 
36 month period, they were not permitted except for the months of um, January and February 2020. Uh, but in that period, we had two owner move-ins and they were served during a time in which it was prohibited. They were served on the same property. They were both rescinded. And so no one was displaced as a, as a part of those notices. Um, I believe the chair asked uh, me to, you know, shift the window back 36 months more to capture the 36 month reporting period prior to COVID. And so that would have been the January 2017 to December 2020 window. And in that period, we had 42 owner move-ins. And so that's kind of, that was a, the baseline we were working with um, prior to COVID. Uh, and may I see the next slide, please, Amy? Thank you. Uh, and so, so what do we do when we, once we receive a notice that, that an owner intends to move in, the ordinance does require us to administer the relocation payment and, and that's, that's in the ordinance. And then as we track these properties, we send letters to the, um, to the properties that have been subject to an owner move in to verify that the uh, owner or qualified family member still lives there. Uh, we inform the occupants of what would be the controlled rent level. And so we send out this letter saying, hey, you know, if you're living here and you're not the owner of their family, you this would be your rent ceiling because we would we imagine the controlled rent continues in that period if the if the property is not being used in the proper way. Um, the rent board staff will perform site visits on properties that we suspect might be um, occupied by someone other than the family member or owner. Um, and we monitor public records to determine if there's a change in ownership. So someone's supposed to be living there for 36 months, but property data shows they sold it 18 months later. That's a violation of, of the owner move-in ordinance, and it, it triggers some rights that the um, displaced tenant might have. And so, so with that, I'm happy to take any questions that the uh, commissioners have. Yes, Commissioner Marrero. It's just a helpful tip if possible to increase font sizes because i cannot see your presentation so if you could like maybe the way uh, matt brown had just a little little bigger in font sizes because it's just hard to see the presentation so oh yeah my apologies for Thanks. that I'm, I'm happy to you know work this up with bigger font sizes and send that to you commissioner if you would like and so I can send that to. Uh, I appreciate it. it. Thank you. No, that's so my really my apologies. Small, but it, it really does matter. Thank yeah. you. Ali, can I ask you to, to clarify that it is one uh, residential property and not one rental property? Oh, that that's correct. Okay. For the owner movements that become permitted in the what we're calling the transition period of the amendments to the COVID moratorium. And if there aren't any other questions or comments, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just make a, a brief comment just to um, reiterate the uh, discussion that we had um, last week at the um, eviction committee um, was that there was this, um, you know, we talked about the need to be prepared for a potential, um, you know, sudden, um, you know, um, you know, OMI move-ins that, that could um, happen once the, um, moratorium is, is lifted on that, which now we know is um, happening on May 1st. Um, so just to reiterate that, you know, we want to make sure that Rembold staff is ready and prepared for a potential very large increase in this. Thanks. Thank you. Um, not seeing any other, I'm going to move us along. Um, we now are at the, um, just to remind folks that 
If you want something on the agenda, please let us know by April 10th by 5 p.m. And what it means to let us know is that you send it to our board secretary at her email. All right. Um, because of time, I'm just going to ask if anybody has from any of the any of the chairs has any specific. Often I usually go committee by committee, but tonight um, I'm just going to ask if somebody wants specifically to give an update from um, their committee. Outreach. Yep, Vice Chair. Uh, yeah, just really briefly for outreach, the two big updates. One, um, we talked a lot about the uh, outreach efforts around the eviction moratorium. We already heard a lot about that, so I won't get into it more. Um, but if folks have recommendations, definitely pass them along to the chair, to staff. Um, this is you know, going to be the big push. And uh, the other one is a tenant survey has successfully reached out to the sufficient number of people to be statistically significant. So thank you to staff for all your work on that. And we're looking forward to seeing those results very soon. Great. All right. Um, just moving down to updates and announcements. Um, both uh, Commissioner Walker and I are participating in an art exhibit at Yerba Buena on Sunday at two o'clock. Um, and it's the entrance is free um, and it's about um, imagining if you were to have um, an additional amendment to the Constitution. There have been a couple other um, events around the um, exhibit and the one that um, Commissioner Walker and I are participating in is about um, if we had the, the right to housing in our Constitution. So hope you all will, will come and let your friends know at two o'clock on Sunday. Okay, can I, um, any other discussions of items for possible placement on the future agenda? Uh, Commissioner Moreno. I just have a question about the two by two, if there's any segue with meeting with directors. Yeah, um, yeah. I did re get a response. Um, they uh, the question was asked, what what's the description? What's the content? What will we be meeting about? And I, I, I responded. So it's not an affirmative yet, but it is about asking what exactly what would be discussed um, with this committee. So I'm waiting for that response. So hopefully we will get an affirmative soon. Thank you. And just for the record, we've been trying to set this up for like 10 years. So the fact that they've responded is actually huge progress. Do we yep. do we know who the school board members are on the two by two or if they've appointed? The school board members that um, I reach out to is um, Mr. Chang. And I um, fortunately I can't pronounce the uh, Jennifer. Uh, yes. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Why am I turning it off? All right. Can I get a motion to adjourn? Second. Second. <laughs> Don't all do it at once. <laughs> How about Kelly? Joyfully. All right. All oh. those in favor? Oh. Yes. Opposed? Abstain. Good. Nice to be here. All right. Motion carries. We are adjourned. Thank you. It's fine. Thank you. 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 Thank you.